Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Simon Jackman. I'm Professor of Political Science here at the University of Sydney and Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Centre here at the University. Uh, We acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet here at the University of Sydney, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's on their ancestral lands that this University of Sydney is built. The US Study Centre is honoured tonight to be hosting Brad Smith, uh, President of Microsoft. And I'll say a little bit about Brad and Microsoft in a moment, but first just a little bit about the connection between a US Study Centre and Microsoft that Brad was asking me about a little bit earlier, a little bit about us. Our mission is rigorous analysis of the United States, of Australia's relationship with the United States, with the aim of strengthening that relationship in Australia's interests. Now, a key component of the US-Australia relationship is in the domain of IT. Australia, as you people here tonight would understand, is a voracious consumer of IT. We are an advanced market-based economy. We're predominantly English-speaking. We love tech, and we spend our money on it. But it's through the internet and the associated technologies and services that constitute the internet today that Australia is connected to the rest of the world, but especially to the United States. And indeed, I'd hazard that at this moment in Australia's history, through the internet, we are probably more connected in more diverse ways to the United States than we've probably been at any point in our history. That's true economically, certainly true in science and technology, but it's also true culturally. IT itself, though, is a domain in which America's global dominance and innovation is perhaps made most apparent and is felt most directly by Australians. Australia doesn't merely consume American-sourced innovation that comes out of companies like Microsoft and other American IT firms. Microsoft, like, a, like other American IT firms, but Microsoft in particular, have made tremendous investments in developing IT and innovation here in Australia. Indeed, on this campus, where Brad and the team were just checking out the magnificent nanosciences hub that Microsoft uh, is largely responsible for. And while in town, you know, I, I'm sure you were checking out your other significant investments around town here. Microsoft has, has, has got a major technology hub here, not on campus, but elsewhere, elsewhere in Sydney. Now, those investments create high-paying jobs. They build Australia's technical capability and generate flow-on effects throughout the economy. And indeed, one of the research programs we've got at the Study Centre examines the role that American-sourced spending on R&D plays in Australia, over a billion dollars a year of R&D spending in Australia comes out of United States firms doing business here. And that's the Microsofts of the world, but some other big players there. And that's a huge share of the total R&D spend in Australia comes from our connection uh, to firms like Microsoft. Brad's here tonight to talk about this topic, facial recognition in an artificially intelligent world. Now, today, half of this audience was at an ethics and data science conference where I I spoke at earlier this afternoon. As I look at the world of data science and IT at the moment, there's no more interesting topic than the the fast pace of technological development on the one hand and the ethical challenges that is throwing up. And by the same token, facial recognition is probably one of the hottest things happening in the space of world. So that is right at the tip of the spear, where the possibilities technologically and commercially of this technology run head-on into some really important ethical considerations that consumers and governments are demanding that big tech companies 
have a solution for, or else they might take matters into their own hands. So it's just, it couldn't be a more interesting topic that we're going to get treated to by tonight. The stakes are enormously high, not just for Microsoft, but for all of us at this moment, given the fast pace of technological development and, and facial recognition perhaps being be key, key among them. So after Brad speaks in just a moment, uh, the director of the US Study Center's, tra- uh, pardon me, our Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program, not our Trade and Investment Program, our Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program, Claire McFarlane, will, will uh, lead uh, Brad through some uh, moderated Q&A, an opportunity to take some questions uh, from the floor. Um, but in the meantime, could you please join me in welcoming Brad Smith to the stage? Welcome to the University of Sydney. It's great to have you with us. Well, good evening. I'll, I'll start talking while the people move the lectern, uh, and I might just stay here anyway, uh, because that way you can see the slides and I won't walk in front of them. Uh, but first, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, I uh, want to thank all of you, and for those of you who spent the day thinking and talking about ethics and artificial intelligence, uh, hopefully you'll find that what I have to say builds on what you've been talking about all day and perhaps takes it in some additional directions. I want to start, however, before I really turn to facial recognition, by just pausing and talking for a moment about the events of the last two weeks and their connection to technology, namely the horrific terrorist attack and tragedy in Christchurch, New Zealand. That's where I spent the first part of this week in Wellington, Monday and Tuesday. And in ways that I think we'll see as we go through this, that's not entirely disconnected from the topics that we'll talk about this evening. But I think it's fundamentally important that we use this as a learning moment. And when I say we, I think the first part of we is for the tech sector especially. Yeah, there are some who point to the things that technology was able to do, and it doesn't, in my view, actually really matter what it was able to do because it didn't do enough. And I think one of the things that this whole episode shows is at the end of the day, in every area of technology, people will rightly be judged by their failings, perhaps even more directly than their strengths and successes, because the world is so dependent on technology. Um, Thankfully, our services were not used to a very significant degree by people to try to spread this video around the world. And most of the time when they were, we were able to stop it even from being uploaded. But it didn't mean we were perfect either. Uh, We looked at how things worked. We've already implemented two changes to take account of that learning. But the most important thing, in my view, is that we all recognize that this is something where new steps are needed. New steps are needed in at least three areas, in prevention, to stop the Internet from being used, to spread this kind of venom in the form of these kinds of videos. And that's a step that requires better technology and more human interaction as well. It requires that we develop and improve our ability to respond to a crisis. Interestingly, the tech sector has created certain crisis response capabilities in the area of cybersecurity, and we now need to move those over and apply them in the area of safety as well. 
And finally, I believe that there's a real need to at least step back somewhat and more broadly create an opportunity for all of us in technology, beyond technology, to think about the online environment that the world is creating, that technology platforms are creating. I just think there are too many days when digital discourse has become far too toxic. And it's a huge leap from hateful speech to killing people. But the first is not helpful. And in some ways, the standards that we expect of each other in the real world, the standards that we frankly use to define civilization itself, are sometimes lacking in the discourse that we see online. And here, too, we have some opportunities for real improvement. And here, too, in all of these areas, in my view, we need to recognize that technology and tech companies need to do more individually and collectively, but governments have a new role to play as well, a broader role to play, even a regulatory role to play. And so I do believe that this is a conversation that not only has grabbed the headlines here in Australia this week, but it is a conversation the world needs to have so that we can not just learn from what happened, but prevent it from happening again, or at least take the kinds of steps that will make it less likely to recur. As I said, I think it's not bad food for thought as we think about the topic that I planned several weeks ago to come here and talk about, facial recognition. Facial recognition is really a special case, in my view, of a broader issue around ethics for artificial intelligence. And so it's great that some of you were focused on this today. We've been focused on it at Microsoft. Fourteen months ago, we took the step of publishing what we thought would be at least a contribution by identifying what we thought were six principles that should be applied when we think about ethics and AI namely fairness, so as to prevent discrimination, reliability and safety, privacy and security, and inclusiveness. Inclusiveness, I think, is one worth pausing on for a moment because we, I think, always need to remember that one of every seven human beings in the world has a disability. Some are permanent, some are temporary, some may be physical, some may be mental, but Technology has a fundamental role to play in helping people live better lives, and when it's designed with the broad needs of people in mind, it actually does that. And when it's designed without thinking about that, it's very likely to have unintended consequences and hold people back. All four of these principles rely on two others. One is transparency because we can't expect the public to have confidence in AI if we don't explain it in an explainable way, in an accessible way. And then there's this issue of accountability. I actually believe it is one of the most fundamental issues and questions for all of us who happen to be alive at this moment, because we are the first generation of people that is creating machines that can make decisions that previously have always been made only by human beings. So we have to decide whether we're going to do a good job or not. Are we going to ensure that machines remain accountable to people? Are we going to ensure that the people who make machines remain accountable to the public at large? We need to do all of that. But interestingly, as one thinks about artificial intelligence, there's lots 
of room for excitement. There's lots of reason to be excited. Of course, you expect somebody who comes from a tech company to say, listen to how excited I am. But I also think we need to recognize that in many ways, we're living in what I would call a new age of anxiety. And you see it in the issues that go well beyond Christchurch. As people think about AI, they often ask, is there going to be a job in my future? Will my children have jobs in the future? Are we even creating a future we're going to be able to control? These are all issues that are now front and center. And so while we're very excited about what facial recognition will bring, and I'll show you a little bit why, we also separated ourselves from others in the industry who I think were a bit surprised last year when we said that this is a technology that needs to be regulated. And I want to show you why, and I want to show you how, and I think really have that conversation. Now, in some ways, as we start to think about facial recognition, one of the things that I think is really interesting to pause and reflect upon is that all of us have had the ability to recognize people's faces since virtually the day we were born. Human beings can recognize a mother or a father or another caregiver or a stranger. And now it turns out computers can do that too. Why? Well, there's a science, as many of you know. It's because we have seen many technical advances this decade in particular. And it's really this intersection of four fields. Improved imagery with 2D and 3D cameras. But really it's the advances in massive amounts of data, massive advances in computational power, both in the performance of computing and its aggregation and accessibility in the cloud, and finally, advances in artificial intelligence, especially based on neural networks or deep learning. And when you put all of that together, it makes it possible for computers to recognize people's faces. How? Well, it turns out that you can take our faces and reduce it to a series of mathematical equations. There is the length or distance between our pupils, the shape of our nose, the size of our smile, the cut of our jaw, the shape of our chin. When you reduce all of these to arithmetic equations and you use all this data and computational power and the advances in pattern recognition and deep learning, it turns out that computers can differentiate among our faces. What's interesting is the variety of uses to which this technology is being put, and it's worth just looking at a few of them because it's really quite something. In some ways, it starts with an example here in Australia of consumer convenience. The ability to develop an automated teller machine that you no longer need a credit or debit card to use. It will recognize your face, you use your PIN as a security precaution, and you no longer need to carry around your card. That's convenient. It may seem slightly trivial, certainly compared to what is happening in India and other places where the police have been able to scan images and recognize some children who are missing and reunite them with their parents. Or in the United States, as part of the National Institutes of Health, A new deployment has been created for facial recognition. It is a tool for physicians. 
because there is a certain disease called St. George's syndrome. And it can lead to kidney failure, it can lead to heart failure, but it also first manifests itself in certain facial characteristics. And it turns out that when physicians are able to use this as a tool, they identify patients who have this disease that they otherwise would have missed. Or at Microsoft, one of our favorite applications is something we've created ourselves called Seeing AI. It turns out that we all carry around these computers called phones. They all have cameras attached to them. They all speak or can provide us information in our ear with an earpiece. And when you give this to someone who is blind, it enables someone to learn much more about what is happening in the world around them, including quite possibly the person who just walked into the room to join a meeting. So in all of these ways, you see these opportunities to use facial recognition in a manner that I think is genuinely socially beneficial. And all of that is really exciting. But there's challenges as well. And in many ways, it's the challenges that I think deserve more of our attention. Our view as a company, what really prompted us last year was the conclusion that this is the time to act. This is the time to regulate and legislate. And it's interesting, when I said this, when we published this as a company, the reaction by some in Silicon Valley, in fact, many in Silicon Valley, is, oh, you guys at Microsoft must be behind if you want the government to act. No, the, actually, the opposite was true. In Washington, D.C., the Federal National Institute of Standards and Technology evaluated over 100 algorithms that had been submitted by more than 40 companies, including Microsoft. And when they rated these qualitatively, our algorithms were at the very top of the list. So why would a company that is leading say that it's important to have regulation? Well, a big part of the reason is we want to avoid a race to the bottom. Almost every AI-based field is reliant on large amounts of data. So of course, if you do more deals, you're going to get access to more data, it's going to help you continue to be more successful. But that can create a temptation to do any deal under the sun, to be just sort of oblivious, if you will, to the risks that you may be creating. It is the classic recipe for a race to the bottom, and that would be terrible for the world. And in our view, the only way to avoid such a race to the bottom is to create a regulatory floor. So in December in Washington, D.C., I gave a speech, we published a blog, and that is what we proposed. Specifically, what we proposed was legislation or regulation to address three problems, privacy, bias, and democratic freedoms. Let me talk a little bit about what we're thinking and what we've suggested in each area. Let me start with privacy. It's interesting. There's a quote that I think captures a lot of what we should be thinking about. Recent inventions and business methods call attention to the next step, the next step which must be taken for the protection of the person. I think that speaks to our challenge. Now, the interesting thing is this quote was not written last year. It was written when the streets of Sydney and New York and Chicago and London look like that. Interestingly enough, the invention in question was instantaneous photographs, the ability to take pictures, which is, in fact, what facial recognition does. What had happened was the spread of cameras combined with 
mass journalism was leading to what people were afraid would amount to an invasion of privacy. And it led to one of the most famous law review articles ever written in the United States, easily the most famous ever written about privacy. It was written by a future United States Supreme Court Justice, Louis Brandeis, who talked about the right most valued by all civilized men being the right to be let alone. That was when people worried about walking out of their door and being photographed, perhaps with someone they didn't really want to be seen with or didn't want their spouse to know they were with. But when you think about what this can do today, it creates a potential world where every time you step into a store, walk down a street, go to a mall, there may be an incentive commercially to follow you around, to capture what you pick up on the shelf and then put back down, to capture what you buy and what you decide not to buy and pass that information along to other stores as well. Now, we'll be the first to say there will be benefits. Shopping will improve in some important ways with facial recognition. Already, we're seeing technology being used to speed the ability to purchase your groceries at a grocery store. But there are real risks. And so what we've said is it's time to start to take some steps. In the first instance, we should have laws and regulations that give the public notice. So if you're walking into a store where facial recognition is being used in this way, you know. And that will spark conversations. People can ask questions. And we need to create legal mechanisms that enable people to provide consent. These are just initial steps, but they're the first steps, and we think they're important. The second issue that we think needs to be addressed is the one of bias. And the truth is, The tests of facial recognition to date, especially by academic institutions, have shown a proclivity to bias. Namely, facial recognition services have a higher error rate for women and people of color. And a lot of this has to do with the state of data sets. It turns out that most data sets have more photographs of white men than dark-skinned women. And that contributes to this this bias that we see. Now, what we find interesting is that no customer actually wants to buy a system that's biased, but how can it know? How can it know whether a system is going to work or not? What we need is a well-informed market. And we think that there is a way that the law can stimulate the development of that market in a way that will propel every company in the facial recognition area to address this problem and make progress more quickly. It starts by requiring that tech companies be transparent, that we document the capabilities and limitations of our services and do it in terms that people can actually understand. But then second, our proposition is that if a company wants to be in the facial recognition market, it should be required to enable third parties in academia, in consumer organizations and elsewhere to test their service for bias. This is commonplace in many parts of the economy. You get to read safety evaluations of cars before you buy them. People should be able to read evaluations of facial recognition services before they deploy them. But we should do one other thing as well. We should require that the companies and others that deploy these services actually have human beings who are trained to review the results 
and use their minds before they just take the result of a computer and deny somebody credit or a bank loan or entry into a public facility. That's what we need to protect people from this risk of bias. And then finally, we think that it's very important to focus on the democratic freedoms that we believe could be at issue if facial recognition is deployed the wrong way. We would be the first to acknowledge there are important uses for facial recognition, including, for example, at airports, to help identify a terrorist who might otherwise board a plane. But we need to strike a balance. We need a balance between safety and our democratic freedoms. We need to recognize that one of the pillars of democracy has always been the ability of people to come together, to assemble, to speak. And what this technology does, potentially, with ubiquitous cameras and facial recognition services, is follow anyone anywhere. Follow everyone everywhere on a scale that is literally unprecedented. Interestingly, unprecedented, but not unimagined. Because 70 years ago, George Orwell wrote his book, 1984. And if you read the book, what you realize is that part of what made possible the totalitarian society that he described was precisely a technology like this that made it impossible for people to come together even privately to discuss their political views. And if we're not careful, this technology will go forward without thought, without legal regulation, and we're going to wake up in the year 2024, look around and say, wait a second, this feels like a day out of the book 1984 instead. So we need to start to address this as well. Our proposition is that the law should allow law enforcement to use facial recognition, but should only allow law enforcement to use a ubiquitous facial recognition service to follow a specific individual around on an ongoing basis if one of two requirements is met. Either law enforcement goes to court or an independent official to get a search warrant, as they must today, or that they act when there is an imminent risk of death or serious injury. We will be the first to say that these proposals do not address every issue under the sun. And in many ways, even for the issues they're designed to address, they do not go as far as we'll probably want to go a decade from now. But one of the points we're trying to make is in the world of technology today, whether we're talking about safety or privacy or security or our democratic freedoms, we need to recognize the importance of governments starting to move faster. And so what we're really advocating, if you will, is a new approach to technology regulation. It borrows from a concept in software design. For those of you who are majoring or concentrating in computer science, one of the real themes of software development over the last five years especially has been this concept of creating a minimum viable software product. In other words, there's two ways to build a car. One is to design every piece of it and then finally release a car. The other is to start with a skateboard, get it out, get feedback turn the skateboard into a bicycle, to put that out, get feedback, turn that into a scooter or a motor motorcycle, release that, get feedback, and then take everything you learn and put it out in the design of the car. 
And what people are finding is that this approach to software development actually enables people to move faster, learn more quickly, and be smarter and create something that is better. So we're asking ourselves, and we're starting to share here in Australia for the first time and then around the world, a question. Can we move this concept from software development to technology regulation? In other words, don't think about every issue for which there is not yet an answer. Focus on the answers that are clear and adopt a law that embodies them. Well, we're pursuing this path not just in Australia, but in other places as well. For example, we've taken those proposals that I've just shared with you that we published in December, and we're taking them to different state legislatures in the United States, including our own state where Microsoft is headquartered, Washington State. Now, interestingly, just last month, the Washington State Legislature passed a bill with all of these proposals in it by 46 to 1. And I'm optimistic that we'll see this in law by May of this year. So imagine that. Imagine being able to identify a technology problem, propose a regulatory or legal solution, put it out in December, and have a new law by May. That is like internet speed. And we're not used to governments working in that way. But if governments are going to play a stronger and broader role when it comes to technology, it is, we believe, an opportunity to experiment and develop a new approach. Ultimately, I think we do also need to recognize that while government regulation is critical, it does not absolve technology companies of the responsibility to act as well. It's impossible to absolve technology companies of this responsibility because we can't expect every government everywhere in the world to act quickly, and some may not act at all. So what we've said is that companies need to act also. So the other thing we announced in December and have continued to refine is six principles that we are implementing across Microsoft to address these issues as well. And not surprisingly, the six principles reflect all of the concepts that I just shared in our regulatory proposals. And what we're doing is what technology companies now need to do in every area. You start with principles, and then you've got to create policies. You've got to create systems and processes to train your employees. You've got to provide educational materials to customers who will deploy your technology. You have to put in place compliance systems, because that's the only way to ensure that a large global company with a billion or more customers actually lives up to the principles that it defines for itself. So this, too, we think is an opportunity that speaks not just to facial recognition, but to every aspect of artificial intelligence and AI ethics and to all of the broader societal issues that have become important. The last thing I'll just say in concluding is we know we don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody has all the answers. I think we're at a point in the development of this technology where we don't yet even have all the questions. But if we've learned anything over the years, you never get to the right answers unless you start by asking at least some of the right questions, and you learn a lot faster when you learn by doing and not just by talking. And so from our perspective, this is the time to get started. We need to move quickly. We need to move around the world. 
We may need to move in the technology sector, but more than ever, we need to move with the public and broad public discussion, like the one we get to have this evening. So thank you very much. So I'd like to add my welcome to Simon's welcome. I'm Claire McFarland. I'm the director of the Innovation Entrepreneurship Program. Brad, thank you so much um, for that. I've got kind of two questions that I want to start with, and then it would be great to um, throw it open to questions from, um, from the floor. We've got a lot of people here from across a number of different industries and students, so it would be great to hear their perspective. But I wanted to start... Uh, at the grassroots of AI. And one of the things that, although it may not sound like it when I first start with a question, one of the things that we have been following is um, in February there was an executive order that came out of the White House on artificial intelligence. And the focus on it was American leadership from an economic and national security perspective on artificial intelligence. Um, And and there were five areas of acceleration identified, and you would be aware of this, but um, for the purpose of everybody else. One was on R&D investment. One was on the promotion of an international environment that supports this investment and opens um, the markets for industries. One was around building the workforce. One was around making federal data and models and computing resources available. And one was on setting governance standards. And a lot of this focuses on the benefits of AI, but what struck me in this is that there was not a lot of focus on community standards or citizen standards, and in fact the word ethics doesn't appear at all in the executive order. Um, Although protection of American civil liberties and values are mentioned. And so what struck me about that is that I think it's very easy for governments and for large technology companies to exist in a bit of a bubble and not to um, get an understanding of, of how the average person on the street feels about AI technology. Microsoft obviously has products that are everywhere, and used by people, average people on the street. And so what I wanted to understand is how are you taking into account in these principles that you're developing the, the, the voices of those who don't live and breathe technology like you and I do, but who use it every day and are affected by it? How are their voices reflected in this discussion around the ethics of AI? Well, first of all, I, I think you've really made an important point, actually multiple important points, One is that the tech sector too often lives in a bubble. I think that is a challenge. Uh, Second, that the people whose voices really matter, those for whom technology is created in the first place, the broad citizenry, the public, um, don't necessarily have enough of a voice in where technology goes. Now then, when you stop and think about that and you define it in its own terms, I actually think it puts us on a pretty clear path. How do we ensure that the public's voice is heard? Well, there's a variety of methods. I mean, two large tech companies this week have created advisory boards to get an outside-in perspective. I think that's a good step. We have certain things like that as well. But ultimately, I think we just need to recognize the obvious. If you work at a tech company, we weren't elected by the public. What we need to do is engage the people who are elected by the public, who represent the public, to make the decisions that will govern this technology. Um, Certainly, one of the defining statements that we like to talk about in the United States is that no person's above the law. No government's above the law, but I think equally no company's above the law, no product, no technology is above the law. Of course, that's only true if you actually have some law. Hmm. And we have really had technology developed for four or five decades with very little law. It's been a laissez-faire approach to technology development. Hmm. 
And so I think the time has come for the public's voice to be heard. And, you know, we we're encouraged that in Washington state people say, hey, this is a good approach. We'll pass a law based on this. But what it forces is a broad public conversation. And then the public's voice is heard and reflected in the views of legislators who govern us all. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and I think you picked up on a really important point, which is that, that point around technology companies working together and working with governments. And, and so, you know, my second kind of question that I wanted to go to is more on an international stage as opposed to a, a citizen level. And it's around cybersecurity. I know cybersecurity is a, is a really strong priority for Microsoft. In fact, I saw you speak at the RSA conference last year mm-hmm. um, uh, in San Francisco. It's it's really important for, for large companies, also for small uh, companies and consumers. And one of the things that strikes me as really interesting about Microsoft and something that, that may not be well known is that CBS Insights um, is report, CB Insights, sorry, is reporting Microsoft being very active in data security patent applications uh, in the last few years, more active than Facebook, Google, Apple, and uh, Amazon uh, until 2017. And there's these products and services that keep consumers and businesses safe, and then there's the the broader way in which international society works together. And, and so I wanted to ask you about the Digital Geneva Convention, which is something Microsoft is involved in, um, and that's about protecting cyberspace um, in times of peace. And my understanding is it came about in response to the growing scale and scope of cyber attacks, which, you know, in Australia have not been so broad as they have been in other parts of the world. Um, and, you know, there have been other examples of where an international uh, environment has come together to manage technologies with these, these kind of potential to uh, create catastrophic harm, and the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is, is one of those. Multinational companies obviously have a role to play as part of this international community. The Digital Geneva Convention strikes me as an example of that, and so I wanted to ask you, how is it, how is it going? How is it progressing? It's, it has a role to play in terms of, even though we're in peacetime now, Mm-hmm. The, the um, events of last week indicate that, you know, even peacetime, there can be um, violent attacks. And so I wanted to get um, an update from you in terms of how it's going. Yeah, well, first, um, just for a moment, what inspired us to pursue this in the first place. Uh, in 1949, obviously four years after World War II ended, all of the governments came together in Geneva, Switzerland. They were invited by the International Committee of the Red Cross and they created what was called the Fourth Geneva Convention. And in essence, what that did was create not just a moral but legal obligation for governments to protect civilians even in times of war. So we were looking at these nation-state attacks that we were seeing in the cybersecurity realm, and we said to ourselves, my gosh, here are governments attacking civilians in a time of peace. This feels like we're going backwards, not forwards. So what should we do about it? And we said, well, what we really need is a digital Geneva Convention. And what that meant was we need to take the existing rules and norms that are here already. We need to build more momentum to have them respected around the world. We need to identify the gaps in international law today. There's really no norm that says that governments have to refrain from attacking democratic processes, elections, and the like. Uh, And then we need to strengthen them. And the way we need to strengthen them is not just to bring governments together, but 
have multilateral initiatives that, in fact, are multi-stakeholder initiatives that bring together government, technology companies, business, and civil society. Now, the most encouraging things we've been able to do over the last couple of years fall into two categories. One is a broad technology sector initiative that we spearheaded. It's called the Global Tech Accord. It has now brought together 90 companies that pledge to protect people everywhere, to refrain from helping governments attack innocent citizens anywhere, and commits us to now take practical steps which we're pursuing. And the second was a multilateral, multi-stakeholder initiative that was announced by President Macron in Paris on the 12th of November last year. It's called the Paris Call for Trusted Security in Cyberspace. And it really, in our view, moves the discussion and these principles forward to address all of these needs. And what most encourages me about that is it now has more than 500 signatures from around the world, including more than 60 governments. So we're working on building these initiatives. We have more initiatives. We constantly have sort of our next three things in the pipeline that we're working on. Uh, And for us, it's just an ongoing process that we think will probably take a decade to put in place all of the protections that people need and deserve. Okay, great. At this point, because I'm conscious of time, and there's a lot of people here, I'm, I'm going to open it up for questions. Um, Drew and Elliot have got microphones, so if you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up, and they will um, take, yeah, take questions. We're going to start here at the front. Please, as you ask a question, stand up so everybody can see you. Say your name. Ask your question. Please don't make long comments. Hi, um, I'm Zoe. My question is on open source development and artificial intelligence. Microsoft recently bought GitHub, um, a code repository website uh, that a lot of open source development projects are based, uh, where they're hosted. Um, And my question is, how do you see the artificial intelligence work fitting in with the push towards open source software development and technology? It's a great question, and I guess I would say two things. First, of course, all algorithmic approaches, all AI-based tools and, and, and applications and the like do, of course, get reflected in source code. And in the world today, increasingly, that is open source code. Um, One of the most important steps that we have taken as a company in the last year, maybe the last decade, actually, uh, was our acquisition last year of GitHub. Uh, And we've now, in our view, become the stewards of software development and perhaps especially open source software development for the world. Very different position from where Microsoft was 10 or 20 years ago, for those of you, those of you who followed us for a long time. Um, but what we've said is we're very focused on you know, making GitHub a better GitHub. Uh, we are focused on creating better tools and features for uh, open source development. One of the first steps we did uh, late last year uh, was provide free of charge to people around the world the ability to have private repos or repositories of open source code. Uh, the number of private repos on, on GitHub tripled in the course of a week uh, when we did that. So we're, we're trying to strengthen open source tools to support, call it AI development. The other thing we're very interested in is what I think needs to happen, which is to do for data what open source did for code uh, and pursue open data initiatives. And 
that's a whole nother topic, but it's something that we're very interested in in a broad set of ways, and I think it will be a major priority for us. Great. Thanks, Brad. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. I have a question. Do you think the manner in which your company frames the values can lead to limited governance uh, and limited uh, government initiatives uh, and regulations? And in turn, this will uh, fail to address the unintended consequences of the use of technologies. And the background to this question is the following. Virginia Eubanks documented the way in which artificial intelligence decision-making systems were supposed to tackle human bias. And in fact, their use increased inequality. And another example she gives is that after mandatory sentencing was introduced to uh, change disparities in sentencing, uh, actually the sentences for the people of color uh, they ended up being much longer than beforehand at the time when judges had discretion in deciding what length of sentence to give to the person. Thank you. Well, I think you've really quite helpfully identified some of the problems we have to try to avoid. And we're hopeful that our approach to, say, governance and this kind of principle-based decision-making, and as I think you quite rightly put it, values-based decision-making, can in fact help. I think we all have to recognize that technology can work well or work poorly, make the world a better place, make the world less of a good place. It all depends on how well it's designed and applied. And you know, some of what we're trying to do is sort of ferret out and address these problems of bias. But the interesting thing is it's also the kind of problem that sometimes requires that we say no to certain sales deals or certain uh, technology deployments. Uh, you know, one example, uh, you know, last year there was a police department in California that wanted to license and use our facial recognition technology so that every police car would have a camera connected to facial recognition-based database. And if you were pulled over on the side of the street for anything at all, they would run your image through a database, and if it showed that you were suspected of having committed some other crime, you would have been put in the back of the police car and taken downtown. And we said to that police department that we were not comfortable licensing or providing our technology, and we didn't think they should be comfortable using technology from any provider for this purpose, because at this stage in the technology's development, the risk of bias is simply too high. So what it really calls on us to do is to identify the kinds of risks that you just mentioned and talk to people and say, please don't use it for this purpose. It won't do what you think it will do, at least at this point in the development cycle. And the interesting thing to me, the most gratifying thing really, was the law enforcement agency didn't say, oh, fine, we're going to go across the street and buy from somebody else. They said, thank you for letting us know. And we're working together on improvements over time before this technology gets used in that kind of way at all. Do we have another question? There's questions at the front too, Elliot. Yep. Stand up, please. Huawei and the backs of Chinese tech companies. 
A great question, and you know, the answer is yes. There is broad competition first uh, across the U.S. technology sector. Uh, you know, certainly for us, with other companies that are based in Seattle and companies in California and elsewhere, there's global competition, and there's a real focus in many quarters on the competition between the U.S. tech sector and the Chinese tech sector. And you, know, you alluded to that in part. That's what led the White House to come out with this initiative. And there are multiple dimensions to this. You know, one is there's the obvious. Every country always likes to be a leader in a field. Uh, and so there are concerns that some countries will fall behind. Second, uh, I think that there are ethical and human rights considerations. One of my real fears uh, is that, you know, we'll see companies make decisions in order to win this race and stop thinking about human rights and ethics. And, you know, we'll have technology that's everywhere, uh, but not technology that is designed with the thought to the impact it's going to have. So I think that you know, dimension becomes important as well. Ultimately, when I think about the geopolitical ramifications of this competition for artificial intelligence, uh, what I step back and think about is that some technologies do have a disparate geopolitical impact. Some countries have auto industries, others do not. Some, company, some countries have really vibrant tech sectors, others do not. But I think that artificial intelligence is something that will be infused everywhere. Every university is going to be using it, governments, companies, you name it. And that causes me to think a little bit about something else that's infused everywhere. It's called electricity. You know, we've never had an era where we've said, oh, is there an electricity leader? It's really just a question of, are, is everybody getting the benefit of electricity? And so I sort of regard our mission as one of making artificial intelligence as ubiquitously available on comparable terms to everybody everywhere, so that if there's an advantage, it's just an advantage of people using it well, using it broadly, and I hope using it ethically and responsibly, and not having to worry that, oh my gosh, my country is going to fall behind some other country because we're not the leader that some of these other countries might be. I think we have time for one last question. One quick question. Drew. Me? <laughs> Please stand. Okay. Hi, welcome to Sydney. Uh, I, I do understand, you know, about the 20th century and 21st century armless, very different. 21st century is a much, much more dangerous and unpredictable, uncontrollable. Cyber space, cyber warfare in space must be liquid. I urge you to do that. I urge Bill Gates to do, go to say that. Because this is, you know very well, better than me, you know, because the, that kind of digital revolution, it makes the whole thing. It can lead to nuclear war easily. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. It's not a bad uh, thought on which to end, because I think it maybe is the ultimate and most important question for all of us in this room. And I think that 
all of you in this room actually have a role to play, whether you're a professor or a student you know, from the business or, or community or the public sector. Uh, you know, the truth is, this is very powerful technology. Uh, and it's also like almost any technology that has been invented since the middle of the 1700s. It can be a tool or it can be a weapon. And the truth is it will be both, depending on who uses it, how they use it, and for what purpose. And, yeah, I just think one of the fundamental challenges that we face is that it's maybe a little too easy for people who work in technology in their bubble to just be so excited about what we're creating. And believe me, there's lots of great reason to be excited. I'm excited about what we're creating. Uh, but I'm also reminded, and I think your comment points us in the right direction, I'm reminded of what was said by the person who was arguably the foremost scientist of the first half of the 20th century, Albert Einstein. The year was 1932, and the governments of the world came together for a disarmament conference in Geneva, Switzerland. And it was a moment in time when people could actually see the darkening clouds on the horizon. They could see where the world was going. They saw all this powerful technology. And Albert Einstein called on the governments that were convening. And he said, look at the machine age. You know, here was an era of airplanes and automobiles and all these conveniences that were shaping everyday life. And he said, look at this machine age and think about how pleasant it would have made the world if only humanity's organizing power had kept pace with these technological, technological advances. And he said that this is a time when the organizing power of humanity must catch up with technology. That was 1932. The world was put to the test, and it failed. And tens of millions of people died as a result. So we should be excited about where this technology is going, but I think we should just be determined and resolve that we're not going to let that happen again. And therefore, we do need governments, and not just individually, but collectively, and we all need to use our voices to spur the kinds of conversations that need to happen. And therefore, I just sort of say, especially you know, as this is my last, literally my last thing before I go to the airport uh, and fly back to Seattle, after four days in New Zealand and Australia, after being really in the part of the world that you know, has been at the center of thinking about what happened in Christchurch, about thinking what it means for technology, after in fact being frustrated by the reaction of some in the technology sector. Don't lose sight. Don't lose that sense of frustration because it needs to be channeled and it needs to be voiced and it needs to be pursued in a way that will make this the inflection point I believe it needs to be. You know, a real moment when we actually say, wait a second, we're going to do better. We're not going to let the 20th century repeat itself. We're not going to sit idly by and let Christchurch be repeated either. We're actually going to come together and make something happen. If you do that, believe me, it'll be the best trip I ever had. Thank you very much. Thanks, Fred. So, 
We're going to close there. Brad, as he said, needs to go to the airport. I want to thank you very much. It's, been, it's a great honour to have you here in Australia. Thank you all very much for coming as well. You know, the United States Study Centre, it's an, it's an honour for us to have you here. We exist to inform Australia about the United States. Microsoft is an example of one of the most, um, one of the largest, most important US companies. It's a great honour to have you here. Thank you all very much for coming and, and for your questions. And um, we wish you safe travels. And please come again Good. soon. Good. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>